0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Uh, Turn to 1 John chapter 5. And then, I think actually I'm going to have you turn over to Exodus 20. As well, and so if you could find that real quickly, I should have already mentioned that. First John chapter five and Exodus twenty. We won't be in Exodus twenty just yet. Um, so, if you want to just put your uh, ribbon there, your um, something to mark that, we'll be there here in just a little bit. We'll begin primarily in First John five, and then go to Exodus twenty here in a few moments. <clears throat> First John chapter five. We'll begin reading in verse eighteen. It says, "We know." That whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting way to end it. We talked last week about the things that we can know if we're a member of the family. We can know that we can live above sin. We can know that we can live above the mess. We can know the one true God. And you would think, well, that's a great way to end the book. And then John, kind of as a tag, just says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Amen. In some ways, you kind of wonder what he's trying to get to, and I think today, hopefully, we'll be able to look at what John, John meant when he said, little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the truth. I pray that you'd help me to convey it. God, hide me behind the cross, and I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. That the words that I speak would only be the words that would please you and that they would be words that are filled with the Holy Spirit so that the power of God can move in this message. God, it's not about me. I'm asking you to bless for your people's sake. Bless us and help us and help us to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. You know, we were coming down to the end of our series here in the book of 1 John. And like I said... This is our last our last look at the book of First John, but not necessarily our last look in this series. Family traits, and I've certainly appreciated John's simple and direct communication on what it looks like to be in the family. I I pray that it's been helpful to kind of peel away. I pray that it's been helpful to kind of peel away all the preconceived ideas that we have about what it means to be a Christian and. And take a simple look at the evidence. Hey, okay, let's just back up a little bit here. Everyone focus in. And you know one of the things we try to do in our services is limit movement. Not because we're, we're trying to control the atmosphere so tightly. But we want the focus to be on the Lord. And let's be mindful of that. And just to keep the focus on him as we go through this. But we're coming down to this, the end of our series here on 1 John. And, and I appreciate how simple and how direct he has been. And what it looks like to be a part of the family. I I pray that it's been helpful that that we that we kind of just look at the evidence. he says here's what it looks like to be a member of god's family. Here are the characteristics that prove that you're part of the family, and it's in the same way that a child will look at a parent or a child will have a similar mannerism to his parents or that he would speak with the same words or use the same dialect as his parents The this in the same way that that happens in a family the child of God should resemble their father we should look like our father that people should look at our lives and see that there's evidence and that's really been John's message and how to know how to have assurance that you're part of the family and and I asked this question last week and and I want to ask it again because it's our last time in first John do you know that you're part of the family Do you know that you are in the family? How convinced are you? If you're less than confident, then know this. The Bible says that you can know that you're part of the family. First John 5, 13, in the same passage, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. Don't overcomplicate this. I know I've reiterated this many Sunday mornings, but there's no more important message to be repeated than this. You can have eternal life, and you can know that you have eternal life. The Christian life can be real. You know, there, there is one true God, and knowing Him is the highest achievement for mankind. Friends, that's the mountaintop. The mountaintop of your life as a Christian It's to know the one true God and fellowship with the one true God. There's no higher achievement. He's real and it can be real for you. And and by the way that John closes the letter, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here a little bit scratching my head the first time because the message has been so clear. You can know God. There's one true God. You can know him. You can have eternal life. And then his final sentence is, little children, keep yourself from idols. And it kind of, kind of throws me off a little bit. It threw me off. I mean, by little children, obviously we know that he means the children of God because John is like that old sage, wise grandpa and he's kind of sitting there in the chair, the rocking chair, and everybody's kind of sitting around him just listening to what he has to say because at this point, John's almost 90 years old. He's at the end of his ministry and so when he writes little children, he's doing it because of his age and everyone else, but he's also just doing it to say... You're you're children of God. You're part of God's family. He says, little children. So don't let that part throw you off. The part about idols is what I ask myself about. It seems at first glance, that's a little random. But when you think about John's message, it starts to make sense. See, the idea that he ends with is this. There is one true God, and you can know that one true God through Jesus Christ. That's the truth. So by him tagging on with, Keep yourself from idols. It's like he's asking this question. So if there is one true God and you can know him through Jesus Christ, why would you settle for a substitute? Why would you settle for less? You know, you walk around today and and it seems like there's a substitute for everything these days. There's somebody putting something out that is like the original enough, but it's either cheaper or it's healthier. You look around and I think about sugar substitutes. You know, you go down the aisle at the grocery store and you've got sweet and low and you've got, I'm trying to remember them, Splenda and Equal and Stevia and NutraSweet. It's like, I don't even know which one to choose. Which one is least likely to give me cancer? That's going to be my filter next time. You know, you, you got sugar and all natural sweeteners. You can use this instead of wheat flour if you have issues with gluten, and you can use this kind of flour and that kind of flour. And, and if you really want to get natural, use sawdust. And <laughs> it actually enhances the flavor of some of the alternative flours out there. Aren't, aren't there substitutes for everything these days? You got a substitute for everything. Well, I was one big substitute in my mind just recently. That that I have partaken of is, I I don't know even what possessed me to do this, but a few weeks ago, I've heard about the Impossible Whopper for a while now. The Impossible Whopper is that whopper. You know know what the original whopper is, of course. The original whopper, that flame-broiled patty of beef on a... I don't even know how to describe it, okay? I'll let Brother Chad do that. I mean, it's got that signature flavor, that... Smoky, bro- you know, charbroiled flavor. Well, they wanted to uh, to appeal to those that don't eat beef, so they came up with this impossible Whopper. So I don't know why, on a whim, you know, the Burger King's not too far from the church here, and I was driving by it, and I thought, you know what, I might as well try it. So I went through the uh, drive-through, and and uh, you know, I've got here in this bag, I've got an original Whopper, which we all probably have tried, and then I have the Impossible Whopper. You know, the Impossible Whopper is a vegetarian alternative to this. It's basically, there's no meat on this. I don't know what they have taken. I don't know that I want to ask, but they've put it together into a patty, and they put it on the grill, and they, they cook it up, and they put it on a Whopper, and it's got Everything on it that a Whopper does. It's got the, the beef and it's got the lettuce and the tomatoes and the onions and the same sesame bun. It's got all of that. It's just not meat. It's vegetarian. It's a veggie patty. So I decided to try it. Went through the drive-thru, picked it up, brought it back here to the church for lunch one day. And I opened it there in my office and started eating it. Now, let me just say this. this my, my reaction probably... Uh, is going to surprise some of you, as I was eating it, I was, I was not, it wasn't terrible. I, I mean, that says a lot about it, doesn't it? I was actually kind of impressed. I mean, not because I couldn't tell the difference, because I could tell the difference between the, uh, I'm going to call it the imposter whopper, it's impossible, but in the original whopper, I could tell the difference. But I was pretty impressed with how close it came. It actually kind of tasted like a Whopper. And if, and if I wasn't thinking about what I was eating, if I just took a bite with everything else, and, and especially with cheese on it, you can't really taste that much of a difference. So, uh, you know, I am an equal opportunity eater. <laughs> Meaning I have very few prejudices when it comes to trying something. I'm pretty adventurous. And maybe some in here are equal opportunity eaters in that You're willing to try something. You're not afraid to try. And some of us in here would say, yes, I'm an equal opportunity. I'm not, I have no preconceived ideas. I'll try it. I'll try anything once. Maybe that's you. And then there are some in here that are like, no, I'm not trying that. I have the things that I like and I know that I like them and I'm going to stick with the original Whopper. How many of you would say, that's you, you're not very adventurous? Okay. How many of you would say, I'm adventurous and I'll try some different things from time to time? That's me as well. Okay. So if I'm the adventurous one, in our family, then I would say that my wife would be, I don't know, the exact opposite. (laughs) So if I look at something like an imposter or impossible whopper, if I look at this with great excitement, my wife would look at this with great skepticism. So I decided to conduct an experiment, you know, where this is going, right? So I went a few days later and I bought another Impossible Whopper. And this time I took it home. And my intention was to conduct an experiment and and cut a piece off of the Whopper and ask Erin if she wanted a bite of the Whopper. Not to tell her what's going on, not to tell her it's the imposter Whopper, but to make her think it's the real thing and see if she could tell the difference. And the, the plan was going swimmingly Ex- except that I was not wise enough to hide the wrapper when I got home. So I sat down on the ta- at the table, and I'm opening this up, and I'm like, this is going to be good. And one of my children, who shall remain, un- renamed, remain unnamed, uh, one of the loud ones, which it could be any of them, <laughs> pipes up with, Dad, is that really an impossible whopper? And I'm like, shh, 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 I was trying to, and no, it's too late then, because mom's hear everything, and mom heard that. So she comes walking over, and she's like, you got an impossible whopper? And so my experiment failed, and it was all downhill from there. At that point, I knew that I would not get an objective response from my wife. I knew it. Now, I still did give her a bite, and no surprise there, she, her response was the, the crinkle face. You know, like, oh, what is that? You know, she was not pleased with my vegetable offering that I brought her. I felt like Cain right in that moment there. (laughs) So, she didn't like it. I didn't think it was bad. But I want you to understand, I mean, if you're going to go for this because of health or some other reason, I understand. But can I be honest with you? If the real thing is better, why would you trade the real thing for a substitute? And you may say, well, I like the substitute better. That's fine. I know the, the illustration breaks down at some point. But listen, if the real thing is better, and actually the real thing I think is cheaper, if the real thing is better, why would you settle for a substitute? And in the end, that's the message that John is trying to tell the readers here. He's saying, by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols, he's saying, you could have the real thing. Why would you settle for anything less? I mean, he, there's a true God... And as a member of the family, you can have a genuine relationship with the one true God. So if there is a true God, and you can have a genuine relationship with that one true God, why would you settle for a substitute? I mean, John spends the entire letter, and he's trying to get them to see that they can know the true God, and they can have real evidence in their life of the true God. But they lived in a day full of false gods. They live in a day full of false substitutes. John spends a good amount of time warning them about the false teachers of the day. Those Gnostics were trying to get them to to think that there's a substitute that would be just as good as the real thing. Those Gnostics that we've talked about many times, they were trying to say that knowledge is better than faith. They were trying to say if you will just simply, the more you know, the more enlightened that you can become, and that that your relationship with God is is contingent on all that you can learn and know. That's why John, many times in the book of 1 John, counters with said, by saying, no, you can know a lot of things, but it becomes as a result of you being in the family. You can know a lot, but that's not what make, gains you favor with God. It's not about knowledge. It's not about enlightenment. It's about faith in God's word. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. That's where our faith stands. The Gnostics were also trying to to, uh, to get the readers to think that, that, if, that, that there were those that said Jesus Christ was not really God. They were trying to get them to think that there may be a, a, Jesus Christ maybe wasn't who he said he was. Some of the Gnostics, the Antichrist, as he calls them, were coming along and they were saying... Now listen, Jesus Christ, if he's really God, then he, he couldn't have had a body when he was born and when he died because a God couldn't subject himself to birth, a God couldn't subject himself to death. There's no way that Jesus Christ was God. And maybe he was God, but when he was born and when he died, he wasn't, you know, there's no way he was God then. They say that either he changed or transformed into God at his baptism and there was no longer God when he died. I'm not making this up. This is what they really taught. Or they said, or his body was never real, it was just an illusion. That's what the Gnostics are trying to get the readers to think. They're trying to give them a false substitute for the real God. They were trying to, they were creating a false God, is what they were doing. They were presenting a different God than the one true, authentic Father. So if presenting a different God than reality, If that's the case, then it's a very natural step for John to end the letter with little children. Keep yourselves from idols. There's a lot of false substitutes out there. There's a lot of imposters out there that are trying to get you to think their way is real. All that false teaching going on, it would cause John to think it's necessary for me to end with this. Guard yourselves against substituting God For something less than God. You be on guard folks. Don't trade what's real. For something that's not. So when he uses the word idols. It's on purpose. He's writing to the church here in Ephesus. where, Where historically we're led to believe. That he ministered for many years. And if you go back to Acts 19. Then you see. That, 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 that the church at Ephesus dealt with idolatry a lot. The silversmiths there, the Temple of Diana, read Acts 19, and you find out there's a lot of idolatry, a lot of idol-making there, and when their business was, was being hindered, they were not happy about the work of God. These people at Ephesus, they knew that idol- what idolatry was. They saw it all around them. They knew, and the readers may have been scratching their head and saying, well, we, well, we wouldn't bow down to an idol, John. Why, why would you say keep yourselves from idols? See, but John warning, John's warning, it doesn't just apply to statues. It doesn't just apply to stone or, or wood or gold idols that you carry in your hands. You see, folks, in, an idol is anything that occupies the place in our hearts where God is supposed to be. An idol is anything that occupies the place in our hearts where God should be. And you might say, well, I would never put an idol up in my house and bow down and worship it, but if we're honest, if we are honest with ourselves today, and I want you to come and just lay all the other things aside, I want you just to lay aside all the pretense. Let's just be transparent. You don't have to say anything out loud, but I'm asking you to lay aside all the things that we pretend to be at times. Lay those things aside. And yes, you may not ever fashion an idol out of stone or out of wood or out of gold and set it on on your mantle in your home and bow down on your knees and worship it. But I can tell you this, if we're honest today and transparent and we've laid all the pretense aside, we would have to say we can and we are prone to practicing idolatry of the heart. You say, well, I'm not even sure about that. Well, let's look over at Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, this is that famous chapter in the Bible where God uh, gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 20, gives them to Moses. Moses writes them down on a tablet. And I want you to notice where, where God starts. The very first thing that he begins with here. Look at verse one. It says, "And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage." First of all, what what God is saying at the beginning right here to Moses, he say, "Listen, I'm the Lord thy God. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage." What he's saying is I am a real living God and you've seen the evidence. I I'm not only I'm not just a concept. I'm not just an idea. I am so real that I reached into Egypt after 400 years of slavery and I pulled you up out of the bondage that you thought you were never going to get out of. I am the Lord thy God. I reached down and I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. I am a real, living, breathing God. God's claimed authenticity was easy to prove to the children of Israel. They knew it. Look at verse 3, then he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, the idea here, this is similar to John's passage over in 1 John, is that God is telling them there should not be anything in their lives that is above him. There should not be anything in their lives that's more important than him. Here, here, Here it is. We practice idolatry of the heart when we allow anything to become more important to us than God. We may not set up an idol we would practice idolatry of the heart, as Ezekiel 14 calls it. Idolatry inside. We're all prone to removing God from the throne on which He's supposed to sit, the throne of our lives, and allowing something else to take His place. We allow inferior things, inferior things to occupy the place in our hearts, reserved for the one true God. When God told the Israelites that they shouldn't have any gods before him, he was making it clear that he was to be first in every thought, in every decision, in every action, in their love. Their lives were to be about God. You know, you look around at Christianity today, and I would say you don't see very many Christians who live their lives about God. There may be some who have fit God into their lives somewhere as just another piece, but I'm telling you, what, what the call to God's people has always been is that I am first. The New Testament says it this way, but seek ye first in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. In Matthew 22, he says, Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So here it is. God's call to his people has always been... Your lives are about me first. So we are led then to believe that if our life is about anything other than God, then we have an idol in our heart. Is there anything in your life that it, in which God is not first? Is He first in your thoughts? When you have time to just sit and think, does God enter your thoughts? Is he first in your daily schedule and your daily choices? Is he the one determining where you're going next and what you're listening to and what you're watching and who you're spending time with? Does he determine where you spend your money? Does he determine where you go? Does he determine where you who you spend your time around? Or maybe does money determine your choices? There's a relationship with another person. Has that replaced God on the throne of your heart? Your schedule, have we gotten so busy that we now leave God out of our days? Is God first? Or have you replaced him with a substitute that is certainly inferior to the original? It's idolatry of the heart. In Ezekiel 14, these elders, these respected leaders of Israel, they come to the prophet Ezekiel, and God said about those men that came to Ezekiel and there in 14, these men have set up idols in their heart. They were respected. They were religious on the outside. They would never bow down to an idol and worship an idol in front of other people. But God says very clearly, though, they have set up invisible idols inside their heart. And they may look it on the outside. And they may act like everything's good and that God is first. But on the inside, in their heart, there are invisible idols set up. Meaning that I am not first in their life. And yet they look apart. The These elders, the religious. And folks, we ought to be careful because we have religion. And on the outside, we can pretend. But on the inside, is there something An idol in your heart that's more important to you than God himself. So we can set up idols in our heart by having something more important. We can also set up an idol in our heart by redefining God to suit our needs. Look again in Exodus 20 verse 4. He says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So God tells the children of Israel not to make idols. And this is, now this is obviously fashioning a physical statue, that's definitely what it means, but it's more than that. It goes without saying that the children of Israel were not to make an idol that represents a different God, but this also means that they were not to make an idol to represent and worship the one true God. See, it's not just about an idol that we fashion an idol to worship another God. The concept here is that we don't fashion an idol either to try to worship the one true God. It because, and there's a lot of reasons for this, they, they'd all been born and raised in Egypt. That's all they knew. So in their mind, worship was about idolatry. Worship was about bowing down to an idol. Now that we, and now that we've seen such clear, or they've seen such clear evidence that God is real and that he can work and that he can bring them out of bondage, uh, then they might then try to think, well, if I could take some of the old practices, the, the, idol, the idol worship back then, and now that I have a real God, I could use these idols to worship the, the real God. I mean, what better combination? They actually do this a few chapters later with the golden calf. Now, you go over there and you read it, and that yes, they fashion this golden calf to worship, but Aaron calls it a feast unto the Lord. So what we see is God's people that have come out of Egypt And they're trying to worship the true God, but they're trying to use the old ways in Egypt to worship the true God. And God is saying, you can't even do that because the Bible says that God is his spirit. He that worshipeth God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And if he's his spirit, it means he doesn't have a body. So to create an idol to represent God would be an insult because you could not ever accurately represent God in an idol. Most likely, all of us in this room, we would agree with that. We would say, yes, you could not do that, except the idea is, not, is more than just, an, than just an idol. The idea is defining God in your own way. You see, if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to try to make an idol that represents God, I'm using my imagination. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I've got an idol right here, and, and I think that God, this is what his eyes would look like. Here's what his nose would be, and, and here's what his, his mouth would look like. Here's the shape of his head. And in your mind, you're imagining. And then here's how tall he would be, and here's how broad his shoulders are, and, and here's what he's wearing all the way down to his feet, and here's what his hair looks like and what his beard looks like. Here's what God looks like, and you're imagining it the whole time. In your mind, you're imagining it. And it sounds okay, until you realize that nothing that you could ever imagine can come close to what God is actually like. So any idol that you or I or anybody would ever fashion cannot come close to representing the true God. And most of us wouldn't bow to an idol, but we're certainly prone to defining God to suit our needs. Imagining a God that we prefer... You know, we might use God's mercy as a means to justify something we're involved in that we know we probably shouldn't be, but we would say, well, God's, God's merciful, though. He knows my heart, and He knows my intentions. But over in Romans 6, there were people that did that very thing. What Should we that are, are, in, that are free from sin live therein anymore? I mean, God forbid that we should continue in sin. But they were using the grace of God to justify continuing in sin. What they had done is they had changed the real God into a God that would allow them to live in sin. We do the same thing. We use God's mercy to justify. What we are doing when we do that is fashioning God according to our own imaginations. It's idolatry. And we say, well, God would overlook this or God wouldn't mind if I do this or I miss this or I don't put him first in this area. He would understand because he knows my situation no if we ever get to the place where we redefine god we are idolaters because god is only one way for us to fashion him like our imagination is to lower what he really is we might even go the other way and we assume a position of superiority over some brother or over some sister who's in sin and we say well yeah look at them they're worthless and they're no good and and i just write them off because of where they are but we forget that God looked at us when we were worthless and we were no good and he didn't write us off but he actually gave us a second chance and he allowed us to be saved so for us to turn God into a ju- to be just completely angry and just and unforgiving and no second chances is to redefine God for as he is not We can go both ways and folks we've got to be careful not to redefine God to suit our needs and to look like what we think he should look like. It's idolatry. So idolatry is anything more important to you than God. It's also us viewing God differently than how he is. Those are the two ways that idolatry is mentioned in Exodus 20. So then we go back to 1 John and we look at 1 John 5 again and we see that verse that says, Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. See, keep yourself. What John's saying, here it is. We're kind of coming down to it. John is saying, keep yourself from anything that is more important to you than God. John is saying, keep yourself from redefining God in order to suit your needs or your preferences. John's whole point this whole time is there is a true God. Jesus Christ came and revealed him He's real, you can know him, it can be real for you. But if there's anything in your life that's more important to God, then you're an idolater. Or if you at any time in your life start to redefine God to be like what you think he should be like, instead of what he is like, then you're an idolater and you've replaced something real with a cheap substitute. You have an opportunity to know God. You have the opportunity to know the real, the one true God. And instead of that, you're looking for a way to redefine or put something else above him. And you have settled for something that is a cheap substitute. Don't trade him out because here it is, folks. The substitute is never as good as the real thing. It can't be as good. See, our tendency is to substitute that authentic, meaningful relationship with God for something inferior. Anything different than God is less than God. John knew that that, that was their tendency like us, and that, that they would lean toward replacing a real, authentic relationship with something that, that is less than, that's inferior, kind of like retrating religion for a real relationship. That's the thing that Christ dealt with the Jewish Pharisees about over and over. And when he said that you look a certain way, you appear a certain way on the outside, but your hearts are far from me. And we all have a tendency to replace a real walk with God and instead embrace religious activity. But John's letter is here to help us to see you can't do that. Don't do that. The whole time his talking points have been emphasizing the superiority of what's real and genuine. Not settling for cheap substitutes because the substitute is never as good. So I went through John's letter this week. I went through his letter this week and I I was trying to re-emphasize in my own mind and revisit in my own mind all the ways that when you have a real walk with God, when it's real and it's genuine, here are all the benefits we get. Here are all the benefits. And I just want you to listen. There's going to be a lot here. And I could have included more. Here are the benefits, the ways that we benefit when it's real, when it's the real thing. You can have real fellowship with God. You can have joy that's full. You can walk in light instead of darkness. You can have your sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can live a life without being in constant sin. You can have the advocate of Jesus Christ on your side You can actually keep God's commandments. You can abide in God and walk like Jesus walked. You can love your brother instead of hating him. You can overcome Satan, that wicked one. You can live for a greater yes instead of the present sin. You can abide forever with God in heaven. You can resist the deception of the false teachers. You can discern the difference between truth and error. You can continue with the Father instead of falling away. You can have the Word and the Holy Spirit teach you. You can have confidence instead of shame when He appears. You can experience love from beyond from the Father. You can love others with the same love that God has given you. You can be like God when He returns. You can live above jealousy. You can live above feelings and emotions. You can try the spirits and know what's right or wrong. You can live without fear. You can be bold before God. You can enjoy the Christian life instead of, uh, instead of just having it be uh, begrudging or having it be uh, drudgery. You can overcome the world through faith. You can have assurance by having Christ. You can pray and God will hear. You can see what God can do that only he can do. You can know that you don't have to live in sin. You can live above the mess. You can know the one true God and you can keep it real instead of settling for the substitute. Yeah, just a little list. Minor things. No, major things. And all of those things are found only in Jesus Christ. That's what you get when you have a real relationship with the one true God. They're all superior benefits. John has made the case for the one true God, and he's left little doubt in anybody's mind that if you trade this for this, that it's going to be better. You can know him, and yet countless Christians have traded the one true God for cheap, cheap imitation idols. Something shiny catches their attention. We've replaced God with inferior things by taking our focus of all the benefits that we get because we're part of the family. In a pursuit of money, we've arranged our weekly schedules not around the church that Christ loves, but around our work schedules, around our career. And I'm not saying you shouldn't work. We should. We should be responsible. But money is an idol in this country. And if we give our jobs this much of our time during the week and we give God this much of our time during the week, there's an imbalance. See, I'm not saying you shouldn't work, but I know a lot of people that work so much and they're trying so much to get what they can get that they, to the neglect of service. And if my workplace gets this much, I should make every attempt to give God as much as I possibly can. But money's an idol. In our pursuit of activity, we no longer spend time with the Lord or a big, unless it doesn't interfere with a school activity or a soccer practice or community involvement. We should be active, but not at the expense of our walk with God. It's an idol. In our pursuit of more stuff, we have gone into debt to the point because we think it will satisfy us. But we go so much into debt to the point that it prevents us from obediently giving as we should. Stuff can be idols. In our pursuit of a relationship, the most important person in our lives is a human being instead of our savior. Idolatry. In our pursuit of satisfying our conscience through religious activity, we're covered up in responsibilities without heart involvement. And we've replaced God with religion. Idols. And in all all of it, we justify ourselves because we have also redefined God into one that He understands. He justifies. He overlooks. He knows my heart. He knows my intention. He knows my situation. And And that He thinks like us. We bring Him down to our level. Rather than knowing the one true God by allowing the Bible to shape our view of Him. Listen, have we replaced a real life of knowing the one true God with an inferior substitute? The substitutes are never better than the real thing. No substitute can offer forgiveness of sin. No idol can bring joy and fellowship. No replacement can give you assurance. No substitute can give you eternal life. There's no substitute for Christ. None. He's the real thing. So stop living in pursuit of an impossible, imposter whopper kind of Christianity when you can have the real thing. It may serve a purpose, and I mean, people like it, but it's not the same. Children, family members, it's time to lay aside some idols. It's time to lay aside the idols and enjoy the real thing. I read a Newsweek article from years ago, and it told about how treasure hunters were looking to make some big profit, and they were, so they were stealing rare idols from the Hopi Reservation in Arizona. And the worst theft happened in 1978 when looters came and they took these four ancient stick figures that represented the sacred deities of that religion and and I'm not downing that religion at all. I'm just giving you, this was a Newsweek story. Here's the quote. Without the idols, there could be no Hopi rituals, the article stated. And without the rituals, the tribe's spiritual life was in danger of extinction. A tribal leader explained that the ceremonies bring blessings in rainfall, and for crops, good health, and long life, and that is being lost to us. And and I'm trying, I mean, I want to be gracious about that, but that is idolatry in a nutshell. See, you can make up your own gods, and you can use them to get what you want. But once they're gone, you don't have anything left. If it can be taken from you, it's not real. It's not the true God. Anything you can see or touch or hold or lose is an idol. And it's a poor substitute for the one true God. The prophet Hosea wrote the Old Testament book, bearing his name. And he wrote it as a call for Judah and Israel to return to the Lord their God. And I want you to listen to what Hosea wrote in chapter 14. Hosea wrote, what have I I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard God and observed God. And friends, today, once you've observed the real thing, you're like, why would I want an idol? Why would I ever again settle for anything less when I have heard God and I've observed God? Once you get a taste of the real thing, once you get a taste of the one true God, you'll be thinking, I don't want anything else. I have everything I could possibly need. The best way to overcome idolatry today is to get a taste of what it's like to know the one true God. And you can. Cast aside the idols and put God back in his proper place on the throne of of your heart. Let's all stand together, every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.